welcome to Wonderfully Done, a wholesome show about sex, communication, and loving yourself. I'm Lauren, and usually I've got my gorgeous, juicy, sexy co-host Victoria with me, but I've got a very special episode. It's going to be an interview episode, which means it's myself and a glorious guest. If you're tuning into Wonderfully Done for the first time, Wonderfully Done is a show all about answering listener questions. They can be about romance, sexuality, feelings, crushes, awkwardness, sex, kinks, anything that you want to talk about. We're really giving you that sex posy friend kind of experience. It's important to know that we're not experts, we're not psychologists, doctors, or sex therapists. We're really just wanting it to be a jumping off point where We're discussing some of our feelings, some of our experiences, and you feel empowered to hop on and do some of your own research and get yourself some support. We try and minimize shame here, so it's a very open and honest conversation that we have in every episode. And it's important to note that for the interview that we have, there are some content warnings for homophobia and some minor mentions of assault without detail. Alrighty, let's get into it. Today, I am joined by Connie for a conversation about drag culture and sexuality. So, Connie, what would you like our dear listeners to know about you? Um, well, uh, today I'm Queen Olivia Lucretia Bourgeois Connie St. Redfern III. Um, I live on a space station, Space Station 1, in geosynchronous orbit above Wellington, New Zealand, with my trusty cat, Cuddle Unit 5, and I feel like, given certain things happening in the world at the moment, we've got a lot to share about being inside all of the time. I think that that is really, really prudent. I love a culturally relevant drag queen. It is a pleasure to meet you. And I would just love to talk a little bit about what drag culture means to you this year and really how it all started for you. So I'm like drag terms, I'm 43, which makes me geriatric (laughs) or at death's door, which means that I grew up in the 1980s where in New Zealand it was illegal to be gay and uh, there was very little Uh, representation in the media. Sorry to kind of kick off really heavy, but I just wanted to make the contrast that it's changed so quickly from that reality to now, yes, Queen, RuPaul's Drag Race, teenagers queuing up to see Trixie Metal at Drag Kong in Los Angeles, and my, like in my own long (laughs) and musty dusty life, um, things have really, really changed. Does it feel like that change has been really sudden, quick and disorienting? Does it feel good? Does it feel mixed? Like all of the above. Like in some ways, nothing's... You know what what is that expression? Like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like maybe it's like things have changed, but maybe sometimes it's awareness has changed and people are still living quite difficult, precarious lives because... Um, of their own gender variants and society's kind of like not really on board with that, particularly outside of like Western big cities, right? I mean, I'm in Wellington, New Zealand, you're in Melbourne, Australia, these are kind of cosmopolitan places. Um, But imagine like someone in like some small town, Arkansas, or like some like little like northern mining village in the UK, like things are not the same everywhere. And in fact, actually to the to the really extreme, like people uh, like living in um, the UAE or um, Qatar, you know, there are some very challenging regimes on the planet at the moment. It does feel like there is such a difference in accessibility and safety on a global scale. 100%. And I think um, one of the things that 
probably still stands true is that if you're queer, if you're like gender or sexuality isn't going down <laughs> in your small town, people tend to move to big coastal cities. Um, so San Francisco being at one stage just kind of gay mecca, although it's been eaten by tech. <laughs> Tech has nommed on it. Yeah, so, and, and I'm in a big coastal city and I grew up in small town New Zealand. Um, and I think that's, uh, people want to move where they're safe. That's very understandable. And for yourself, how did you get exposed to drag culture and become involved? Because I feel like these days, anyone who's young and intrigued or older and intrigued would go to the internet first and that's what they'd do. So what was that? What was that life or that process like in a less chronically online world? So I grew up in a small town, New Zealand. We had two television channels. I had a four digit phone number. Wow. (laughs) Incredible. (laughs) There was a public library and uh, like a regional newspaper and that was pretty much my access to like current events type information what I did see I remember th- remember telethons I used to have a telethon in yes. the and raise some, mo- raise some money and in a New Zealand telethon Dame Edna Everidge appeared now just like we all know that she turned out to be as problematic as hell <laughs> <laughs> after Jermaine Greer said some hateful shit and then Dame Edna was like, yeah, what Jermaine said. But I, I think also because everything was kind of transphobic and homophobic, so was everyone in the media at that time. Like it was kind of a prerequisite. It's, it's, isn't it? Because I was thinking about like all of my role models now are like on the no-no list. And I'm like, why is that? And I'm like, well, because like that's how you had to be to be in the media at the time. Like, if you were, like, too edgy, you just wouldn't get hired. And so people who were in the media were towing a certain party line. Anyway, I didn't know this. I'm, like, eight years old. Of course not. <laughs> just, like, a little, little gay faggot in a small town who I was routinely <laughs> getting into my mother's makeup, which, bless her, she didn't really freak out about because I was a mm-hmm. real dumb kid. Like, I didn't... <laughs> No covering tracks. No, no. I just like, I'd hear the crunch of the tyres on the driveway, be like, oh my God, they're home. And so like, rub it all off me and then throw the tissues <laughs> in her waste paper basket. <laughs> oh yeah, cover, cover your tracks. So clever. <laughs> um, so it was a combination of that and seeing Dame Edna Everidge, and I didn't understand that Dame Edna Everidge was a drag queen or female impersonator or whatever. She was just, because I was I was a kid. I mean, I didn't understand. I thought that when my dad changed gears in the car, the car was having a breath. <laughs> we take things at face value. Totally. No subtlety. So I was just like, Damien, this is fabulous. I want to be like that when I grow up. Because mm-hmm. it's an expressive, colourful camp person and you're not thinking about the politics or you know the the gender transgression that might be happening you're just like this is an expressive person that takes up the whole room has all this energy around them and it's attractive right yeah i'm like a leo maybe that's not a huge surprise to everyone (laughs) so is my partner absolutely understand absolutely understand Incredible. So it started there. And then for you, were you only able to be out and about in drag or connect with others involved in drag once you made that move from the small town? Yeah, 100%. So um, I first moved to Hamilton, which is like a nearby city. Uh, but Hamilton's pretty, it's pretty rednecky. It's pretty rednecky. It's like a farming service centre. Um, although 
Interestingly, it's also home of another extremely problematic figure from history, um, the dude who wrote Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh my, are you kidding me? No, really? That's a, incredible. And I had no idea about this. There's a statue wow. of Riff Raff in Hamilton. Oh. Richard O'Brien, there we go. Memory activate now. <laughs> <coughs> incredible. Um, yeah, and I mean, I've got trans friends who just despise Rocky Horror Picture Show. They're just like, mm. oh, it's the biggest just problematic and just you know just caused so many reverberating problems forever and ever which i can completely understand very very valid but also it it It, turned me on like crazy when i was too young to be watching it (laughs) um so there was a a local drag king uh who actually won new zealand's drag queen reality show called hugo girl who um staged a drag version of rocky horror picture show um and the uh judy was playing frankenfurter and judy's trans lady and so i think it's complicated because for a lot of the community they have the other like you just said a lot of people had some feelings discovered some things about their bad selves Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. um you know and it's like dripping with rape culture yeah, the oh, the con- the consent hell. shit is out the <laughs> is out the window. Super problematic, but the shit that shocks you or shows you something different, even if it is really troubling and there's a lot of really valid critique, I think the the ambitious wild art and the effect it has on people can definitely be undeniable. And I'm definitely excited by the queer, gender transgressive, expressive camp media that gets made now with some more modern politics, but I am thankful for um, what came before. (laughs) I I think the thing that really gets up people's noses is that trans women get mistaken for drag queens. And they're like, "Can, can you just not? Like, I'm just trying to get from A to B and have a flat white. Like, just... and. I'm on a bit of a tangent here, but when I'm out in drag, I'm on a bit of a cruise for attention. I mean, sometimes I might be like, no, I don't like it. Everyone's looking at me. I'm like, really, Queen? <laughs> really, you're surprised that people are looking at you given what you just painted on your face and that, like, six inches of heels and six, in- six inches of hair. And so if people see, people start to think that's the way that you should interact with anyone you think is a drag queen, even if they're not a drag queen. And it, it's it's tedious. Yes, yes. And have you had many conversations within your sort of drag family or queer friends and things when it comes to that? I don't know, tension's not the right word, but I would definitely admit that when I was younger, I was kind of confused by a lot of the more traditional drag queen culture of like, is this making fun of women? Is this making fun of trans women? What's happening here? And I definitely have friends with a whole range of opinions and feelings when it comes to drag culture and it being, you know, is it gently misogynistic? Is it transphobic? What's happening? Like, does this take up much real estate in your brain or the conversations that you have? Um, Yeah, it's definitely something that I'm, I'm like never... I'm never not aware of. Um, I think, again, historically, like, so when I kind of moved to this city, Hamilton, there was an, uh, a gay bar there called The Next Door Bar. And I remember going in there as a 16-year-old, which P.S. at the time was like four years underage. To be in a bar. <laughs> so powerful. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but again, you know, like the two television channels and the four-digit phone number, like this gay bar was like my, it was like, it was my Tumblr. You know, that this is the only thing I had access to, to like learn about the stuff. Um, and I go in and it's just this melting pot of all of the gender and sexuality outlaws of this provincial city in like 1995. 
and so you know uh, trans women drag queens um, butch dykes like we were all kind of in it together I think that has changed as the years have gone by where people don't think things have kind of got easier and things have got more legal um, and so people are able to sure what I'm trying to say here like that kind of urgency is not there like it used to be Mm-mm. I feel like there's a lot of segmentation like now there's almost so many of us quote unquote or there's a lot of like tribalism because you know us bi and pan kids can just hang out with each other and like not be friends because I, I can totally agree to a lesser degree where when I started and when I came out all the queer nights were queer nights for everyone but now it's like I can easily just hang out in a discord server just with other millennial bi and pan kids and I know a little bit less about what's happening for the rest of the people that are, you know, across the other letters in the acronym now. And I think there's, you know, we're able to get deeper in our own mini subcultures among queer culture, which I think is, yeah, there's definitely pluses and minuses, but it does mean that I think we can call each other evil or criticize each other without coming together for the discussion, if that makes sense. Mm. The other thing that was happening as well was the um, HIV uh, AIDS epidemic. Um, And all we all know about epidemics in 2021. Um, And so there was another reason for people to come together, um, which was that people were really sick and dying and also having to do massive advocacy to get drugs. Because, yeah, anyway, so that was, that was a whole thing as well. Um, and when people, people are dying around you, it kind, of, it, it kind of really focuses the mind about what's important. Um, and did it feel like drag culture was an important celebration or a certain type of expressiveness that was happening among all of the death and difficulty? Yeah, 100%. So, you, I mean, those big, um, uh, you know, pride parade were often led by, I mean, I mean dra- drag queens were up there, you know, there were a lot of people who were um, uh, up the front of those things um, and the big dance parties that people had to raise money. Yeah, it does kind of feel almost like even now, drag, drag queens, drag kings, people that are almost like gender performers are these interesting semi-public figures, comedians, entertainers primarily, and like, you know, advocates and almost like ambassadors into queer spaces. Does it feel a bit like that for you? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, again, I think kind of the, um, yeah, it's so different now. It's so different now because it's just different because it's like, you know, 30 years thirty years on, people don't die of um, AIDS really anymore. Like um, if I, I mean, I'm negative for, for what it's worth, um, but if I was to test positive I, and <clears throat> had access to the drug regimes that are available in, you know, Australia and New Zealand, I've got more chance of dying of something completely else than I do of dying of um, HIV, AIDS-related illness. Yeah, I remember getting a test and then being like, well, if I'm positive, it's a fucking death sentence. And then having a really bad three-day wait, because <laughs> there was like no, there was no 20-minute testing. Yeah, so all of that stuff, like, you know, and there was a thing about sex and sexuality back then where it was dangerous to have sex, like, you know, it could result in a, a life 
ending illness. And so, and everyone was like throwing condoms at each other. But, you know, there's there's no such thing as 100% safe sex. And things happen in the heat of the moment. Yeah, so it's a, it's a different kind of landscape now where people don't expect that they're going to die from having sex. Yeah, which is real different. When it comes to sex, drag culture feels very interesting to me because I'm not very involved with it. I have not gone to too many shows or have too many friends that are very deep in drag culture but it's interesting where it feels like the the almost characters or the personas are these glorious uh sexy goddesses but they're not always inherently sexual in the way that a stripper or an erotic entertainer might be like does being a drag queen and performing as one or walking around as one feel like being a sex symbol to you like does it make you feel sexy like not generally but the kind of drag i do is um not really sexy drag it's more kind of like crazy campy a day midnight average drag right especially at my like advanced age <laughs> But drag in Wellington, at least, and I think this is true for a lot of cities, it's definitely on the the continuum. So the people that you might hang out with on an evening, drag queens, um, burlesque people, strippers, sex workers, we're all, you know, women of the night <laughs> in, in, in kind of various ways. So yeah, I think definitely um, being in drag definitely puts you in people's minds in that grouping. Yeah, and I remember hearing um, Katya on a, because I'm obsessed with her and Trixie Mattel, I remember <laughs> her talking about in one of her episodes about walking home and the police stopping her and she says, oh no, no, no I'm not a hooker, I'm a showgirl. And just this dichotomy going on. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, yeah, well that's it, right? Hooker, showgirl, burlesque, um, drag queen. You're and- being a bad woman. <laughs> kind of category totally and and actually back into talking about trans issues like when I was like in the 1980s it was I don't think I ever saw any trans woman in any kind of like what we would consider a respectable professional role because the discrimination was so extreme and actually that was true for um, out gay men as well <laughs> tralala and so if you can't get work there there's sex work um is like really one of the few options left and so like a lot of um so I erratically attended Te Whana Whana, which is a culture group here and there are a bunch of um trans ladies there like who were around for that and they were all sex workers because that's that's what was on offer and that mercifully has changed and not to judge sex work but if you don't want to be doing that it's hard you know what I mean survival sex work yeah, which totally. is different to you know those those of us who might go to it joyfully and you were mentioning I'm not sure of the pronunciation but is it Maori trans women culture and so I don't have much of an understanding but it does seem that Maori culture does have yeah I don't believe that calling it like a is is it a gender identity? Is it a is it a cultural thing? I'm not sure if you feel comfortable talking on it. Um, yeah, I do. Like, so I'm like a hundred hundred percent Pakeha. Um, so I don't fuck a papa. I don't have any Maori um, heritage in me. But I feel like I can speak respectfully about what I understand about the culture, which is, and no one will be surprised by this. Any homophobia in Maori culture was introduced by the missionaries. <sighs> what a surprise. What a surprise. What a humongous surprise. And so if you look at um, a friend of mine um, was involved with Lagans, which is a lesbian and gay archive in New Zealand, and um, I was looking at some of the information there. And so there are, there are like writings about early colonists coming to New Zealand and saying, oh, these <laughs> um, the uh, Māori men are very kind of free sexually with each other. And that was shocking to um, some of the ministers. Mm, mm. Some of them 
were quite delighted and wanted to have a little go. And then they got in super fucking trouble from the church. Ah, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, literally Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so the word that um, is takatapui, which is kind of a word that I've I understand that describes like a non-Christian heterosexual take (laughs) on life because I guess for myself I identify as non-binary and drag was kind of a little gateway little gateway drug for that (laughs) but back in the day it wasn't even an option the word didn't even exist you know it's like the oppression was so complete that they'd even stamped out language for people's existence, which is pretty wild. Deeply awful, like colonization, you know, fuck you, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and I think there's something also about uh, kind of Christianity in a mechanistic society where like if everything we buy is mass produced and the machines can only produce so many things, people need to not get too crazy. <laughs> and the limitations of that, yeah. And just having a society where we're supposed to have categories, there's supposed to be rules, you know, we're all supposed to behave in a certain way. And I would say understanding of uh, variance in gender presentation, variance in gender identity. I think Vix and I talk a lot about how incredible the youth are these days and how advanced they are and how much trauma they comparatively might not go through because of the resources and the access and the the joyful existing wherever possible that you know folks like yourself or even myself have done because one day I will be uh, a queer elder <laughs> as well and like how terrifying that is but when you look at the the young drag babies of today is that very exciting for you to see Oh my god, so even the word non-binary, like, I learned it off Tumblr, like, yeah, because we just didn't, I mean, didn't even kind of, I'm like log jammed with how amazed it is, I can't even make the words for it, like, it's just, especially like the inner city high schools, it just was like unthinkable to me at high school to be anything other than deeply closeted presenting as cis male, anything else was dangerous, uh, like, you know, people would, that's the other thing, people would fucking beat you up, and that's, um, that's not really a thing that people worry about now, actually. I mean, gay bashing as a thing doesn't... I mean, you know, it still happens. I think that's improved, at least in Wellington City. It's not the presumed trauma gamut that you will go through as much, I feel, which is incredible. At least all the high schools that are like, what do you mean you don't have uh, queer sexuality as part of your sex education? Like, we've still got so many access issues, but even the thought that when I went to high school, there was nothing but heterosexual sex education and there was nothing about being non-binary or gender identity or anything else. And now, you know, 15 years later or whatever, it's quite different now, which is amazing for like a small Baptist school and how gorgeous that is. Wild. I think the other thing that's happening, because one of the, one of my main kind of gigs now that <laughs> that I can't do late nights like I used to is Rainbow Storytime and going to read some adorable little children books that have um, queer and gender variant themes. And so through that, I've actually connected with a bunch of parents who tend to be around my age, which is, I guess, not that surprising. And what I've discovered is that those parents are advocating on their kids' behalf as well. So it's not just the schools and the kids, but actually the people on the PTA are like these awesome Gen Xers who want better things for their kids than, yeah, it's really nice. 
How gorgeous is that? And does Rainbow Storytime feel like parents giving their gender non-conforming kids a space to see themselves or parents that are just like, I want a more diverse education or cultural exposure for my kids or just a combination of all the above? Yeah, like all of the above, it's really, um, <laughs> does my bitter callous heart, God, <laughs> to see, see kids, like little boys and little girls who are obviously got some different interpretation of the agenda than the mainstream would have them have, being brought along by their parents and being like, look, see, you can exist in the world. That's so, so beautiful. No, I, I didn't want to cry in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, yeah, it's made. I remember the first time I did one at Wellington Public Library. At the end of it, they gave me this big bunch of flowers and they played Kermit the Frog's Rainbow Connection, and it made me. I cried. I was like, it's so beautiful. Like I could never imagine this. <laughs> that is so fun. beautiful. Yeah. yeah, there's guess, little gorgeous pockets in the shittiness of the world sometimes. Totally. Um, and the other thing is, some parents just don't get out as much as they used to. It's kind of fun to see a bit of, like, you know, club life down at the local public library. And my favourite joke is, like, look, you might as well. Your kids are going to en- encounter a drag queen at some time in their life. It's up to you if that is a, in a controlled environment or <laughs> at 3am in a nightclub toilet. <laughs> That's incredible. Oh, my God. I love that so much. And, I mean, does it feel like... Is there a little bit, I feel like there's a lot of uh, misbehavior culture that is around drag queens and drag nights when it is, you know, at clubs or at scenes and things like that. Is there some difficulty in existing as a drag queen, presenting as a drag queen and people feeling like they can touch you or be overly sexual with you in a way that you don't want, you know, in, in club spaces. Um, yeah, well, so talking to my, um, like my lady friends, it turns out that I'm just having the light lady experience. <laughs> <laughs> just people grabbing butts, boobs, yeah, you know, uninvited. I, mm-hmm. I, I was sitting at a bar one time playing on my phone cause I've got like 20 something thousand Twitter followers, right. And I like to give them some attention. And this dude comes up, like just, I don't even know him from a bar or something. He's like, Oh honey, what are you doing playing on your phone? Smile. Oh, gross. Right. <laughs> I had that experience. I was like, oh, I've been on the internet. <laughs> oh, disgusting. And yeah, would, and you just have that creepy it, feeling. And you just, I just know that if I was like not presenting so femininely, they would have just left me alone. In fact, I've discovered this invisibility superpower. If I dress like a dorky dad, no one pays any attention to me. It's amazing. incredible. It's like an invisibility cloak. Except that I fucking, I just don't do it right. I'm like, I'm a dorky dad. And they're like, I'm like, it's a polo shirt. And they're like, babes, it's a rainbow <laughs> polo shirt. I'm like, oh, I fucked it up again, didn't I? You can't be incognito <laughs> enough. Oh my God. That's incredible. I try. Like my take on dorky dad's probably a bit extra. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit incognito, a bit of a Clark Kent, you know, there's something under the first it. layer kind of situation. <laughs> Deary me. And so, for yourself when you're when you're dressing up and when you're in this persona and there are some people that are projecting projecting onto you or feeling a little bit uh, entitled to to you your attention your smile your your whatever else does it feel like the persona is a ramped up part of you does it feel like a role does it feel like could you talk a little bit more about how it intersects with your gender identity yeah totally so uh, it's definitely changed for me over time and there was a while back maybe about four or five years ago where the the line between me and drag was getting real blurred and I think that I decided that I wanted to put drag back in a box kind of because of that unwanted attention 
actually. Yeah. Yeah, because people, um, I mean, you know, they're like, what's under your dress? And they like pull it up. That, to be fair, that hasn't happened for a while, but it has happened. Um, people grabbing you. Oh my God, people wanted to motherfucking touch my wigs. I'm like, can you not? No, get your <laughs> greasy mats away. It cost me a small fortune. Just, I don't know how to set up myself. Um, yeah, I uh, I was assaulted on the street maybe about four or five years ago as well, which is, oh, it happens. I mean, it wasn't like physically terrible. Um, this guy just kind of grabbed me and hissed into my ear like, oh, you think you look like a woman? Uh, but it really messed my head up. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I think, yeah, actually, I think a little bit some of the decisions I've made about kind of toning it down uh, when I'm just kind of out and about has kind of been like a safety thing i'm like oh, am i up for this level of attention you're like yes no although i mean in saying that like about the dorky dad core not being able to actually tone it down because <laughs> like i'm always got some gender fucking variants going on on my person so like little earrings like for a long time it was hello kitty hair clips nail polish uh t-shirt dresses it's one of those things where having to do that mental check-in of how vulnerable am I okay with feeling today? You know, how resilient do I feel about this? You know, how trying to do that little safety check with yourself that none of us should have to do, but many of us have to do when we're putting ourselves together in the morning makes me think a lot about the internet and how the internet was the place that I could be myself, present the way that I wanted to look, play with gender and things like that. And now I see with TikTok, I see the rise of femboys and things like that, where these these guys have huge followings, uh, lots of adoration happening for dressing in a really feminine way or with little feminine accents and things like that to their appearance, but they'd never go outside. And so did you feel that you did drag at home before going out with it? Or would you dress quote unquote straight and only get dressed at the club? Like were there safety measures like that that you were doing? Um, no, I was really out in the world. Like, I mean, I still am. I'm still really out in the world in drag. And a little bit because when I was kind of having my formative drag years, the internet didn't exist like it does now. Um, well, the internet, I'd had a GeoCities website back in Amazing. my day. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, and I think that's definitely, yeah, it's interesting actually, that kind of um, drag for the camera. And so there are definitely queens who have got like the most exquisite makeup skills. Um, but then once they get up on stage, it's like, oh, right, so you haven't developed that Polished part. Polished that your, part. Yeah, mm. as much. Um, and it's kind of confusing because back in my day, to get makeup that good, usually it meant that you were quite experienced. Right. Um, and now it doesn't necessarily mean that. Interesting. So, yeah, I had to kind of recalibrate my um, my read. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that that element of drag for the camera is very interesting because it does feel like drag kings and drag queens are like these multi-talented um, like jester just feels like a completely inappropriate term, but it's like singing, dancing, performing, makeup, dress. And it's like, I want you to be excellent in so many different areas. And I feel like that's a big part of why there's things like, you know, RuPaul, uh, as problematic as a bunch of stuff is with that, but it highlights the multifaceted talents of drag culture a lot of the time, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, I've, I have, I have many... I have, we could just talk and talk about my analysis of RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> Please give us some. I would love a taste. Well, it's a huge part of drag culture now, um, for better or for worse. And 
I mean, you know, I could kind of do a critique about the things that they've got right and got wrong, but um, I think my, the the thing that really fascinates me about it is how, in everybody's mind, it's codified what drag is, because it's an, on a mass media channel, so many people watch it, and so people's idea about what drag is is what they see on RuPaul's Drag Race, when there are other, it's, it's not the way, the truth, and the light, like there's kind of other, like if people followed kind of more of a UK drag thing if they know about Danny LaRue who used to have a television show in drag in the 80s um, in the UK yeah it's just it's just kind of interesting to me that it's become the de facto of drag and like none of the community kind of voted for it it's just right. kind of happened to us <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that seems really difficult to be like oh my culture has been represented by an American reality TV show great yeah. great <laughs> I mean that's on brand for American media capitalism I mean honestly if I thought I could have pulled that off I totally would have I mean I'm just it's probably just jealousy really <laughs> I think there's a lot of valid critique around it, but it also does seem like, as you say, for better or worse, it's raised it in the public consciousness. It's another avenue for drag queens to to make money. I feel like a lot of people don't understand how expensive of a lifestyle it can be and how getting paid uh, can be very difficult, it seems, with the culture. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It's definitely, I mean, I think that's true for, um, like any any performers really you know like the it costs money to if you're like a musician to buy your instrument to have the lessons to like like not earn money because you had to practice which you can't bill for and then you know go to a club or an event and try and get paid in a way that breaks even it's an interesting point actually of uh it seems like I'm, i'm curious as to your experience where drag appears to be something where people talk about i think having a drag mom or like how did you how did you learn about drag was it self taught were you kind of apprenticed by someone it just seems different whereas in the arts there might be more sort of codified culture on how you actually learn things yeah 100% actually it's really interesting I'm just going to do a call back to RuPaul because I've just realized that what RuPaul's drag race is is a codification of the drag scene in New York that RuPaul was in in the 90s ah because interesting that's what Ru knows and that's what they're all doing and no shade but I've just realized this on our show right now (laughs) (laughs) I love an on-show epiphany very good very Um, good you know, and it becomes a bit historicised, but that's what happens in classical music as well, actually. We're still playing Mozart from a long time ago, so uh, I definitely did, I kind of didn't exactly have a grad drag mum, but I had a series of drag aunties, of people who definitely helped me along the way. I think now um, YouTube is a lot, a lot of people's drag mum, and I say that with I, um, just because of the absolute wealth of makeup tutorials and um, sewing tutorials and hair tutorials just like it's an amazing resource to like learn new skills and previously so like highlighting for example you know like the nose the cheeks with the lighter thing that used to be this like freaking secret art (laughs) (laughs) contouring highlighting all the shit wow there was only no one to like makeup artists and and their drag queen mates and like remember like maybe about four or five years ago people were like contouring slash highlighting so much that it looked like they had tinfoil implanted in their cheeks <laughs> I feel like people have pulled back from that a bit but it just went wild for a bit there and my point is that the information is has never been more available and previously in season one of my life uh, <laughs> you had to like know someone and, and mm. so you had to go to the gay bars and and meet the people and be in the scene and all of that I mean there's still an element of that now 
where there's a lot of stagecraft that you can only really learn from doing it. Is there much of a culture of drag lessons or people paying for certain skills or attending classes like dance classes and things like that? Or is it generally all like an oral history in that way? Um, For sure, there's dance classes run by Queens and Wellington. Oh, I wish I could give a shout out to the studio, but I can't think of the name. (laughs) We can put it in the show notes for sure. And definitely people. I mean, I pay for, there's a queen in town, Harley Lux, who does amazing wigs. I don't have... That's not a skill that I've developed to a high degree, and so I pay Harley to sort my wigs out. So yeah, there's definitely um, there's definitely a marketplace of uh, learning. Oh yeah, they had some like drag makeup group classes last year, as I recall. Yeah, it's happening for sure. Mm, mm, I love all of that, and I do think what's been great and exciting and interesting for me is when I when I wasn't sure about drag culture or I had more concerns or trepidation around drag culture and what was it and would drag culture be uh, friendly to me like as a as a queer woman and things like that to actually see uh, drag kings or people that are you know really playing up the gender fuckery aspect of drag culture more and what could you share about any experience with drag kings or whether there are drag kings in Wellington or shows that you've gone to? Yeah, for sure. So big shout out to your girl, Hai, um, who's a kind of like local drag king extraordinaire. I know that around the world people call what we call rainbow story time, drag queen story time, and we deliberately call it rainbow story time to make space for drag kings. Um, and also bio, bio queens who are um, like air quotes women who are doing drag. But one of the fun, one of the fun things that happened one time, years and years ago, there was a drag king troupe in Wellington, and one of them, Jack, hi Jack, um, did this cardinal character, like that was extremely funny but also extremely problematic, um, mockery of the Catholic Church, and I don't even have to tell the listeners, <laughs> the troubled comedy waters that we waded into. Um, <laughs> And I had very confusing feelings about the Cardinal because I'm like, Jack's a big dyke and I thought I was gay and mm, I'm having feelings. Do I need to pee? What's going on? <laughs> and isn't that amazing? Isn't that a beautiful thing? <laughs> it was wild. It was so wild. Um, so yeah, I find sometimes drag kings really fucking sexy, especially if they like get on their facial hair. I'm like, mm, yes, daddy. Um, I definitely <laughs> learned some things about my own sexual response. <laughs> I think one of the things I've got from drag is how, like, as a society, we like to polarise ourselves. Um, And so speaking in broad generalisations here, that women are encouraged to remove all of their body hair, right? It's like a thing. And I'm very attracted to body hair. And I remember one time being in some queer activist meeting group with a, a, a woman who had very hairy legs. And I was like, damn, that's real sexy. And I just wonder how much more bisexual I might have been in a culture that didn't insist on polarised gender presentation? We'll never know. (laughs) There's still time. There's more and more women embracing their body hair. So you just, you just never know what beautiful, juicy experiences may lie ahead of you. But I am, I'm nodding so much along with what you're saying, because even the idea of like, what is masculine? What is feminine? You can just kind of, I feel like there's a power in drag of, not thinking about context, but just thinking and feeling in the moment and just being present with someone who is being riotously themselves, maybe very sexual. And it's just, 
it is a it's an assault on the senses in the best kind of way and i feel like you've got to put your sexuality up on a shelf <laughs> to like really enjoy it <laughs> just a little bit and have you yourself had uh good bad or otherwise experiences where people are hitting on you but you're not sure are they hitting on me as a woman like to what degree are they going to be accepting of the whole me you know has it been difficult for your dating life at all okay so that, that's like a there's a lot of answers there's, there's so many questions in so, it. <laughs> first of all like uber drivers love them some drag queen like, <laughs> you have a great rating <laughs> I, I it's like they're like they're into it i'm like because like, i like i do a better drag right and i'm like this guy's kind of flirting with me and i'm like what is going on <laughs> amazing and it's it's thrilling but it can also be stressful uh no mainly it's just thrilling i'm just so, oh good i'm like so flattered and i get a little bit turned on i'm like mm. <laughs> <laughs> you're turning them. You're turning them. I'm experience in Uber. Nothing's ever happened from Uber. <laughs> but you do seem to bring out reactions in people, does it feel? Uh, yeah, sometimes. I mean, I remember um, one time being at a, an event and bumping into someone I know who were actually... So I'm in, like a little bit poly as well. Big surprise. Um, so High someone, five. <laughs> who's kind of a casual lover. And he, and I was in drag. And he's, he saw me and said, oh, I just want to like put my hand under your dress and something about the stocking and something something and I could have fainted I was so like, turned on by that <laughs> fantastic that was delightful sometimes I get into so I'm going to tell a little bit of like therapy time now I have got this maladaptive belief that is not real but I tell myself that a manly dude is not going to be into me because gay guys want uh, straight acting masculine guys yes and so I've unfortunately got that a little bit on the internalized side and the fact is it's really not true so <laughs> I can think <laughs> life of, wants to show you differently yeah I can think of several couples that I know where they're, they're, it's a real yin yang situation like he's super butch and she's like a screaming queen I'm like yeah okay just that's the reality I'm trying to tell myself and don't so because I did go through a phase on like especially dating apps where I'd present myself as I'm like right okay cool remove nail polish maybe put on some gym shorts okay yeah <laughs> rough, I'm, rough. I'm your butch daddy fantasy but I can't even say it like without <laughs> <laughs> I could, <laughs> dripping with campiness. <laughs> all of my lovers at the moment know that I do drag. They're all super into it as well. And in fact, one of them has put this idea in my head that I hadn't thought of. He's like, it's like being masculine in a really decorative way. Ah. I don't know if he used the word decorative, but that's the idea, like kind of like mm. a peacock thing. Especially because my take on drag has become... Like, no, it's not even female illusion anymore. It's just gender fuck. It's just, I don't pad my body. I don't put breasts on. I don't put fake hips on. I don't shave my beard or any part of my body. Or maybe my, like, my eyebrows are a little bit put together. Yeah, it's this funny kind of... So, so recently I've been reading a lot about um, Versailles, which was this really decadent palace. And, I mean, to be fair, it all ended quite badly for them. And uh, their heads <laughs> chopped off in the French Revolution. If they didn't go mad from syphilis or die from mm. lead poisoning from the powder that they were putting on their faces <laughs> but the men there were real extra <laughs> and wearing high heels and a lot of flamboyance and wigs i think there's so much in that where we examine periods of history where there's there's dandies or we look at the animal kingdom and the men are the ones that are the super decorative and things and so the idea of like what is it to be masculine now versus history and things there's there's so much of the past to be inspired by 
Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't been. It's so interesting because I'm on this been on the sci-fi kick on a space station and such for like quite a while, a number of years now. But recently, I've been reading a lot of European history and European philosophy because I thought I'd better find out where my culture came from. And yeah, it's super fascinating about the different. Like you know, those Greeks, they were mm. gay lords. Plato, Plato and <laughs> so Socrates, many of them screaming mm. gay lords. A lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then fucking Augustine cuddled up with Christianity, and that was the end of that. <laughs> Even the Crusades, or how much queer culture has been destroyed, and that it was literally people's jobs just to destroy and homogenize indigenous sexuality, <laughs> culture, history, so much queer history. And I'm like, so much of it still survived. You cannot kill us. We cannot be erased. Like, it's amazing and inspiring and sad all at once. Mm, totally. One of the interesting things I discovered was that during the Dark Ages, um, actually, uh, the Muslim world kept a lot of that. Uh, antiquitarian Greek philosophy alive and if it wasn't I'm like thank you the Muslim world because my ancestors fucked that shit up for about 500 years <laughs> and so luckily when the kind of cultures came back together they're like oh yeah we've got all of this like writing from the olden times might explain some of your big big ruins in your country <laughs> all the homoerotic homoromantic beautiful yeah. histories yeah. and things like that those coming nice out with those men on yeah. the 69 action yeah <laughs> Gorgeous. Well, when it comes to things like drag culture today and how it intersects with your queer identity, what do you wish more folks would know or think about or talk about when it comes to this? Oh, that's interesting. I What do I w- wish more people would know? I don't know. Maybe I feel satisfied with the way things are. I don't have like a, I don't have a quick answer to that. Just to immerse themselves, embrace the gender fuckery. I mean, I love seeing when people start with drag and they're almost like obeying the rules or some of the mainstream culture around drag. And then, you know, we get to see them be their beautiful, weird selves in the best way after a little bit of time, which is great. Yeah, totally. I'm just, I'm, I'm probably the main thing is pay your performers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so mean, people should tip well yes. and the organisers should pay. Yeah, totally. In New Zealand, we don't have much of a tipping culture, which is which is super weird to me. Um, so uh, I've been to shows. I've spent. I've travelled in the United States quite a lot, and so shows over there, people are tipping the queens up the wazoo, and I'm like, man, this is amazing. But New Zealand's got this real anti-tipping culture like people you just suggested and they're like oh gross it's been like americans and i'm like oh you're allergic to money so (laughs) so i think there's a kind of humility or some hesitation i don't know but so pay the cover charge because that's how the performers are getting paid one thing people are running a patreon or Mm. like a ko-fi or whatever kind of online funding think about dropping some money in that definitely something i really loved in 2020 was like um like my partner that i live with they're really into uh queer culture of clubs and performance and burlesque and all that good stuff and so for their birthday they just commissioned and paid for kind of like a a queer and drag burlesque show to get made that we could all just attend on Zoom with various different performers. And the tipping was really encouraged um, for that event and it went really well. And it was shocking to me that some of the incredible drag folks that were there were getting tipped, you know, $250, $300 for, you know, an hours of performance or something. And obviously a lot more time goes into working on the piece and the makeup and stuff, but they're like, this is the best I've ever been paid. And I'm like, what? (laughs) It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's kind of a labor of love. Um, I mean, I don't think I've ever 
I don't think um, drag for me has ever broken even, if I'm really honest about the expenses. It's like being into cars. (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, oh, I need to buy another lipstick. Do I though? I mean, of course I do. (laughs) Unfortunately, with things like makeup, there will always be the one thing that you don't have exactly or you've forgotten that you've had it. And so I'm on some like makeups like this happened yesterday. And it's like if you spend like blur de blur, the shipping's free. Right. (laughs) So I I bought the thing that I like actually needed to buy because I've run out of it. And I'm like, right, if I spend like another twenty five dollars, (laughs) I I'll save six dollars or whatever like that. Now that you say it like that, it doesn't seem that smart, does it? (laughs) it's it's all good i think i think all of it gets all of us all the time but here here is the question here is the saucy inappropriate question have you had sex in drag i have wow is that a norm for people that get involved in drag do you think um not for me tragically but i think for some some queens i know are like oh yeah i like i picked up a guy we went home it was great so it kind of depends on the queen yes it's probably the the girls that i know who are like more successful you know on the prowl tend to be more pretty traditionally beautiful long flaxen blonde hair that seems to be that seems to have a larger target audience interesting yeah Um, so maybe there's a bit more mainstream sexy interest in i want to call them like the pamela anderson or like the dolly parton (laughs) or something like that yeah yeah totally um but i mean i've you know i mean i'm not I'm not on the shelf yet, so definitely. Um, one one thing that will happen if you have sex and drag, your eyelashes will just you you're, ne- you're never going to see them again. <laughs> they will escape like hairy caterpillars, oh, never to be. Much. I mean, I guess yeah. stuck to that guy's sheets. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible! I just feel like it's going to be the most ramped up version of sex that I've had super made up, which is, yeah, like, bed sheets, totally fucked. Oh Eyelashes, they're gone. Accessories, I've lost them. Nails, they pinged off, you know. No one talks about the carnage of, like, a full face of makeup and a linen. <laughs> I'm like, oh, just just put those pillowcases straight in the rubbish bin then. <laughs> It's completely impossible. Well, Connie, thank you so much for being so generous, so giving, for getting really deep in the feelings with me. I've really, really enjoyed having a chat with you about this. I mean, are there places that folks can find you online or any way that the show can help you at all? Oh, yeah, for sure. So if you're interested, check out thequeenolivia.com. Also, I'm on Twitter with 20-something thousand followers. I'd love another one, though. And that one's Queen Olivia STR. So Queen Olivia STR. I go by Connie because it's just easier. But my like official title is Queen Olivia Lucretia Bourgeois, Connie St. Redfern III. And do you perform on occasion in Wellington? Or can we hang out and catch a drink with you at a favourite haunt over there? So uh, I tend to do MCing gigs. And I've got, oh, actually, I can't announce it yet. But I've got some stuff coming up this year that hasn't been uh, completely finalised. You can find me at SNMs on Cuba Street. That's my kind of Rover's return. And Cuba Street itself is fantastic. I've only been to Wellington the once, but Cuba Street's where I want to live. It's just lovely there. Oh, yeah. Um, and I've got an apartment on Cuba Street now, which is amazing because I was in this really bad housing situation last year. Um, so, yeah, I just want to like haunt Cuba Street and be like, remember the 90s? <laughs> Gorgeous. Well, Connie, thank you so much for that. Thank you for being a friend of the show. And I look forward to chatting to you again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So my lovelies, I really enjoyed that conversation. I hope that you did too. 
and we'll be back to our more regular programming uh, in a fortnight. So if you have been having fun, if you've enjoyed the episode you've listened to, we would love a review. We'd really love it if you recommend the show to a friend. It's really hard for sex-related podcasts to grow because the uh, internet is uh, really, really mean about this kind of stuff, even though you and and us, we really care about it. So please help us spread the word. Please leave a review uh, if you haven't already. And please consider dropping us a question. We love answering the things that you are curious about. So feel free to slide into our DMs over on Twitter at DoneWonderfully. Or of course, you can slip us an anonymous message at CuriousCat.QA forward slash WonderfullyDone. We do have a gorgeous website as well, which is WonderfullyDone.show, which has links to everything. And hey, you're doing wonderfully.